2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understood or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end as you also have understood us in part that we are your boast as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, Paul said, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on the way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh that with with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ, is Christ, in Christ, and has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Then chapter two. I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you that all my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you that with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Then verse 12 and 13, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed to Macedonia. Now, in the next 30 minutes, I have to make some sense out of that really long text. We'll see what we can do with that. Father, thank you so much for your word, and it is all, it is all living and powerful. It is all inspired, it is God-breathed, and when correctly and rightly divided, it speaks life to us. And I believe there is life in this message today. 
Help me, Lord, it's a lot that I'm gonna cover. But help me to speak with simplicity, with clarity, with anointing, not because I've earned it or deserved it, because I so desperately need it. Would you just grace us with your presence, captivate our attention. May we be glued in on the truth of your word today. May we be changed by the power of that word and your Holy Spirit. May we live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray in your name. Amen. Let me begin. Um, let me begin this morning as we continue our series from 2 Corinthians called Sufficient. Let me begin with this quote from William Barclay. A saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. How many want your life to be lived in such a way that makes it easier for other people to believe in God and trust Jesus? The Apostle Paul was committed to a life and ministry that did just that, wanted it to be a life that made it easier for people to believe in God. But it wasn't always easy for Paul. He had come under great fire. Much of the letter, as I have told you, and I think I told you in the introductory message, much of this letter in 2 Corinthians, Paul is actually defending himself. He's defending the fact that he is truly an apostle and that he really has authority to speak to them. The Corinthians had challenged Paul's authority. He had been falsely accused on many levels. They said of Paul he couldn't possibly be an apostle because he was weak. He had been persecuted. He was not physically strong. That could not be a man of God. Paul was not an especially good orator, and they kind of poked fun at his inability to speak with great eloquence. Paul refused to take money for ministry. They said you can't truly be an apostle if you're not willing to take people's money for that because that is your calling. And they accused him of not having true apostleship because a true apostle, they argued, would have had to have seen the Lord and Paul was not around when Jesus was walking on the earth, would have never seen him physically. But Paul, of course, said, I saw them on the road to Damascus when God struck me down. Paul defended himself throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. And one of the attacks that was leveled against Paul was that he had not kept his word. Paul apparently had told them that he was going to return to Corinth in a particular time frame, and he had not yet come. And so they said, see, once again, you can't be an apostle because you're not keeping your word. You're not a man of your word. You're not a man of integrity. George Guthrie gives kind of a helpful chronological context of Paul's travel plans versus his actual travel. Let me just give it to you. You don't have to remember it, but just to get a little framework. In AD 53, Paul was actually in Ephesus, and he sent to the people at Corinth what we know of as 1 Corinthians. He sent that letter to them. He told them that his plan was to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, and then he would travel through Macedonia on his way to see them. I think we have a map. Paul was in Ephesus. You can see that kind of on the right side of the middle line. Paul was gonna stay in Ephesus, and then he was gonna make his way to Corinth after he visited Macedonia, which was to the north. 
Paul hoped to stay in Corinth through the winter months in the following year of 54 and 55 AD. Part of the reason he was going to go there was to take up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who were very poor, famine had stricken them, and he was going to go there and he was going to spend a few weeks and he was going to collect money for the saints in Jerusalem. But Paul's plans started to change in the spring of 54. Timothy went on a visit to Corinth first on Paul's behalf, and when he returned, he came back and said, they are a mess, Paul. That church is in a pitiful state. And so Paul changed his original plans and he went straight to Corinth in the spring of 54 and he made what is called in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2 what he called a sorrowful visit. Apparently when he went there he had to sort things out. He had to rebuke some people. He had to remove people from leadership. It was a very difficult visit Apparently he told them then he would return in a few months after he made his trip to Macedonia and then he would return again to them on his way to Judea. But his time with the Corinthians that was earlier than he had initially planned went badly. He was riddled with personal and public attack and criticism and actually was abused by one of the church members emotionally and spiritually leveling charges at Paul that we read about in 2 Corinthians 2. And those charges seem to have the support of much of the Corinthian church, while the majority of those who loved Paul just kept silent. That's what happens sometimes. The people that are on your side keep silent, and they did. And so Paul felt very much under attack. So Paul went on to Ephesus and after hearing that they had turned against him, he sent what 2 Corinthians 2, 4 calls a painful letter to address the problems. Now we actually don't have that letter. I know that may throw your theology a little bit, but our 2 Corinthians is probably really 3rd or 4th Corinthians. There were some other letters in between, and he sent this painful letter to confront the congregation. And apparently in that letter, or a message from Timothy, they learned, the Corinthians learned, that Paul was not coming until the issues were resolved. Or at least he had a new itinerary that would delay his visit And he would go to Macedonia first and then would go to Corinth much later than they expected. And so this led to even more criticism. Paul, you don't keep your word. You told us you were coming earlier and you're not coming. And this led to the writing of 2 Corinthians, really 3rd or 4th Corinthians, after Titus informed Paul about how much he was being criticized. So what we read, 2 Corinthians is Paul addressing all the criticism he had because apparently he had not kept his word. Paul said twice in 1 Corinthians that we are to be temples of the Holy Spirit. We're to live in this ungodly world where there are temples to all sorts of pagan gods. We are to live in a way that reflects the love and the glory and the power of Jesus Christ, the holiness of him. We are to stand out as the temple of the Holy Spirit And the question is, how do we do that in this pretty difficult world? This can be hard, especially when people 
are around. How many understand people make it hard to be like Jesus, don't they? All right? And so Paul is teaching us how to stand out, live worthy of the gospel, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, even when under attack and even when being criticized. I love this quote by Ben Patterson. People in the church are like porcupines in a snowstorm. We need each other to keep warm, but we prick each other if we get too close. Isn't that the truth in the church? We need each other, but man, we can kind of prick each other too, right? You're not gonna nod your head. You're afraid somebody will see you. So what are the characteristics of those who make people wanna believe in God? When we're facing this unfair criticism, what are the characteristics? Let me share with you five of them. I'll I'll move as quickly as I can, but they're all right here in this text. Number one, um, integrity that's rooted in truth. Look at what Paul says again. Our boasting in this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. We didn't do it with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly, we did it toward you. We're not writing any other things than what you read or understand. I trust you will understand, even to this end, as you also have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, what I wrote, I wrote. Don't accuse me of saying something I didn't say. Now, I want you to notice here that Paul touts the testimony of his own conscience as exhibit number one. Paul said, let me tell you about my integrity. He said, I am going to boast of the testimony of my own conscience that I did not lack integrity when I changed my plans. Now, let's be honest, that can be pretty relativistic. How many spiritual mistakes and false theologies have been instigated by someone that said, well, God told me that I'm okay. God told me this is truth. And so that seems to be kind of a weak argument. I, my testimony is my conscience. Mark Twain's Huck Finn said, it don't make no difference if you do right or wrong. A person's conscience ain't got no sense and just goes for him anyway. Sometimes we feel that way. It doesn't matter what you say. You can say you're good. You can say your conscience is clean, but you're going to say that about yourself. But Paul here is speaking of his conscience in a much more reliable manner because he has submitted himself to God's norms for life and conduct. Paul said, I'm speaking about my conscience of sincerity. We conducted ourselves in godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. The word sincerity is the Greek word elrakrinia. And it means frankness or uprightness or integrity. It means to be pure and without mixture, unalloyed. There's no mixture at all. Those that live with this kind of integrity have nothing to hide. They don't have any shifty motives. What you see is what you get. That's why Paul said, what I wrote to you is what I wrote to you. There wasn't any ulterior motive. There wasn't anything underlined. There was nothing else to decipher. What I wrote to you was truth. What you read and understand, Paul said, is what it means. 
Paul had written transparently. There were no hidden motives. There were no agendas. Paul wants them to be proud of him. He said, I want to be your boast as you are my boast. And he had this confidence in his own conscience because his integrity was rooted in the truth of Christ that could never be diminished. When we speak, look at me, when we speak truth, not our truth, but God's truth, our integrity can be trusted. That's why Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I determined to know only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I'm not gonna come and give you my ideas. I'm not gonna give you my philosophy. I'm not gonna tell you what I think's best. I'm gonna preach the truth of God's word. Integrity in truth will make people want to believe in God. It's unshakable, even in this culture, and it's so needed. See, we're being told if you just flex a little bit, if you just bend your ideology and your philosophy and your theology just a little bit, people will flock to you. Can I tell you, people want truth. They want that which is grounded. They want that which is foundational, that which doesn't change according to the stock market or CNN or Fox News, but that which is true and rich and is never changing the word of God. Say amen if you believe that's unshakable. T.H. White, in the book of Merlin, the unpublished conclusion to the once future king, wrote of one of his characters who is responding to Galileo and others who stood for something despite the odds. Remember, Galileo was the one that said that, in fact, the sun rotates around, or the earth is moving around the sun, and the Catholic Church wanted to run him out for that statement. And here's what was said, speaking of Galileo, they were to be in a position to burn him if he wouldn't go with it with his preposterous nonsense about the earth moving around the sun, but he was to continue with the sublime assertion because there was something he valued more than himself, the truth, to recognize and acknowledge what is. Lives that will make people want to believe in what you have are lives that have integrity rooted in the truth of God's word, and you won't move from that. I don't want to offend you, you say, but truth is truth. That's the kind of life that will cause people to want to believe in God. Number two, character that's grounded in God's faithfulness. Again, look at what Paul writes in verse 15. And in this confidence... I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes and yes? I'm gonna help you with this scripture. We've misused this and no and no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts 
as a guarantee. There's a whole lot here, obviously. Here Paul is initially talking about his travel plans. They've changed. He had intended to come to them. He said, if I come to you, there'll be a second benefit. That is that not only will I see you, but we'll take an offering together and help the Jerusalem church. But Paul is being told that he is not trustworthy. He's not dependable. You changed your mind. You're a liar, they said. You don't have any integrity. So he defends himself, and his defense was this. When I planned, did I do it lightly? Or did I plan according to the flesh? Paul said, do you think I just kind of glibly put this itinerary together? He's accused of being wishy-washy or vacillating, that he had a flawed character. Paul questioned their attack. He said, do you think I was saying yes, yes, or no, no? In other words, Paul was saying, do you think that I was saying absolutely and no way in the same breath? You think I was talking out of both sides of my mouth, saying yes, yes, and no, no, depending on who. Do you really think I was doing that, Paul said. They are questioning his faithfulness or his trustworthiness. But Paul defends himself by saying, my character, please get this, is grounded in God's faithfulness just as God is faithful, just as surely as God means what he says. Paul said, my yes meant yes, and my no meant no. Paul's character was rooted in the faithfulness of God. Now, look at me for just a moment. Paul is not claiming to be perfect, but he does claim to root his character in the faithfulness and the integrity of God. Let me tell you how God's faithfulness really looks. Look at a portrait of the faithfulness of God. His promises are yes, and in him, that is in Christ, they are amen. That means so be it. Guthrie says all of God's covenant promises poured out graciously on the human race have crescendoed with Jesus as the answer. Think about that. When God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed, and by him all the world is going to be blessed, who was that seed? It was Jesus. When God said to David, I'm going to make someone from your lineage sit on the throne forever, What was the fulfillment of that promise? It was Jesus who came from the tribe of Judah out of the root of Jesse. When God said to Jeremiah, I'm gonna make a new covenant, I'm gonna write the word of God on your hearts, who was the fulfillment of that? It was Jesus. Paul says the promises of God are yes, they are certain, they're not wishy-washy, and they always find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. How many are thankful for that? In him, we are complete. So what has this faithful God done? He has established us, first of all. That word means to be put beyond doubts. It's a present participle that is, means it's ongoing. He is keeping us beyond doubt in the safety of his love. He has anointed us. That, that word is in the heiress. It's already taken place by putting his spirit within us. He has sealed us. That is, he has stamped his ownership on us, and he has given us the spirit as a down payment because there is more to come. That's how faithful God is. Paul said, listen, I'm, I'm rooting my dependability, not in my flesh, but in the faithfulness of God. Paul was not saying that he was either perfect or inviolable. 
but his character was grounded in the faithfulness of God. He who promised is faithful. And look at me. And lives grounded in God's faithfulness make other people want to believe in Jesus too. When you live your life rooted in the faithfulness of God, people will want what you have. Number three, I need to move quickly. Authority bathed in gentleness. Moreover, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for the faith, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself that I would not come to you again in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but you, the one who is made sorrowful by me? And so I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy having confidence in you that all my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, that you, but that you might know the love which I also have abundantly for you. Listen to me, this is important. Paul begins to explain why he changed his travel plans. Paul said, I didn't change them because I lacked integrity. I changed them to spare you. The word spare is the Greek word theodomai. It's the same word when in Romans 8, 32, when God did not spare his own son. In Romans eleven twenty one, God did not spare the natural branch with his Israel. Both of those sparing have to do with judgment in some manner. Paul said, if I would have come to you when I did, and there would have been no repentance taken place, it would have been sorrowful, it would have been ugly. I would have come and I would have rebuked people and I wanted to save you from all of that sorrow. So Paul did not say with the two-visit itinerary to refrain from confronting and disciplining those who were persisting in sin. Paul said, the reason I didn't come was wisdom. It wasn't the right time. I think we, we read enough of the New Testament, know that Paul, is it okay to say Paul had a little bit of an attitude sometimes? He did have an attitude he wasn't very patient with John Mark. He said, one time, one strike, you're out. And Paul maybe knew himself and said, this is not a good time for me to come. If I come, it's gonna get ugly. So it was wisdom. I'm exercising wisdom. That's why I'm not coming. Now notice what Paul says. He says, I have authority over you, but I don't wanna dominate you. Please get this. This is really important. We don't find this teaching much. It's, it's buried deep in 2 Corinthians, but that's why I love the Bible. How many love the Bible? It gives us practical truth. Paul says, I have authority over you, but I don't want to dominate you. There have been some great abuses in the church of those in leadership of the church or parachurch organizations that have authority, but they dominate the people they have authority over and they destroy their lives. Even though Paul knew that he was to hold them accountable, he was not to dominate their faith. The goal would never be he would control them. The goal would be that they would grow in their relationship with Christ. He did not come because he didn't want to exasperate the situation. He didn't want to make a difficult situation worse. He was working, look, for their joy, not for their sorrow. How many know that conflict is soul draining? It wears us out. It burdens the mind and it zaps the strength. It causes church splits. 
Even though he will later say that their godly sorrow led to repentance, he was not yet ready to come. So instead of coming, he wrote what he called a sorrowful letter. Not, listen, not to distress them, but to show his love. It was not a vengeful spirit, but it was a heart of love. Can, can, you, just, can you think with me for just a moment? The world, listen, needs to see this in the church. And it needs to see it modeled by church leaders. Authority, listen, that's based in tenderness. Let me explain. In fact, maybe the best way to explain is these words of Joe Belts. He says in his good leadership, the sentence still jumps out at me from the middle of an editorial in the Wall Street Journal. It's been half a decade since I read it, but it was one of those electric expressions that you can't forget. Here was the expression, people want to be lightly governed, the writer said, by strong governments. Lightly government, governed by strong governments. He goes on to say, that's what you wanted since you were a small child. You wanted your dad to be big and strong and able to do anything you could think of except that when he dealt with you, it had to be with gentleness and tenderness. You wanted a policeman on the corner tough enough to handle any neighborhood bully, but who would also hoist you to his shoulders and help you find your parents when you got lost in the crowd. Lots of muscle, lots of restraints. There's an innate yearning in almost all of us for that rare combination. When people rise up, we want a government with the clout to back them down, yet we never want that clout turned on us. You see, in the final analysis. People want to be lightly governed by a strong government because that's how God is. The omnipotent ruler of the universe is also the one who invites us tenderly, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how we are to lead. We're to be strong but gentle. Say amen if you believe that. Strong but gentle. Authority bathed in gentleness. A church and its leaders that will confront evil in strength, but will care for the broken in tenderness and compassion. That makes people want to believe in God. It's not enough just to have our theology right. Not enough just to say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that but to have authority and truth with gentleness and humility will make people want to believe in the Jesus that you serve. Say amen if you believe that. Number four, and then I'll give you the last one sometime after number four. I'll give you the last one. Confrontation motivated by reconciliation. If anyone has caused grief, He's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote, not that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I've forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. I can give this to you real quickly. There was an offender 
in the Corinthian church who had caused great grief. It was a real person, likely an opponent of Paul. Paul referred to him often. Now, tradition had made this person the same one in 1 Corinthians 5 that had been a sexual deviant. But most scholars now think that's, this is a totally different person. This is someone who had challenged Paul. Someone who had got up publicly and said, you are not an apostle. He had gotten in his face. Paul said he not only grieved me, but he'd also grieved the whole church at Corinth. Paul did not want this to be too burdensome, too severe. That word severe is a picture of bundles on a back that weighs them down. Paul said, what I'm telling you now, I don't want it to weigh you down too much. He just wants them to deal with the situation. And the time had come, please listen. The time had come, Paul said, for you to welcome this man back. The discipline that we applied to this man worked. Now it's time to forgive him. Now it's time to comfort him. We don't want him swallowed up in grief. They had turned him away to repent. Now it was a time to turn to him in love. P please hear me. One of the greatest things the world can see in the body of Christ is forgiveness and reconciliation. We chew up and spit out our own far too often not overlooking sin, but confronting it with grace, but always with the purpose of reconciliation. John Stott spoke about one of the leading humanists in Britain. He denied God's existence, but here's what he said. What I admire most about you Christians is forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. He didn't believe in God, so there was no one to forgive him. The one who is confronted and turns back to God is to be welcomed. And then Satan is given no place. Paul said, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Look at me for just a moment. If we confront somebody, if we lovingly point out weakness or failure or sin in their life, and then we kick them around after that, we have given a foothold to Satan to destroy them. That's not what we're about. We're not just trying to be right. We're trying to love them into the kingdom, not just show how right we are. And so it must be grace with the purpose of reconciliation. This is so practical for the church today. Listen, I, I, it's hard for me to even talk about this. The world has changed so much. I've pastored so many years, and it's changed so much. Sexual norms have changed, but the word hasn't changed. How many believe that to be true? While the sexual norms have changed, the word is not. And there is a place for confrontation, but always to reconcile them to Christ, never to shame them. I have found that to be something that more often than not wins that person. They come around, maybe not in our time, but they come around. And it makes it easy for them to believe in God when they see that being manifest in our life. Let me give you the fifth one. Why don't you go ahead and stand and I'll give you the last point. If you want a life that um, makes people want to believe in the God that you serve, 
It's discipleship informed by both opportunity and hardship. It's a real simple point and a really humorous but picturesque story that will drive the point home. Here's what Paul says in the last two verses of our text. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, there was a door open to me. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Paul said, final reason I didn't come was because there was this incredible door that was opened to me by the Lord. And I couldn't find Titus. So there were two other reasons Paul delayed coming to Corinth. A new door of opportunity arose and his concern for his brother Titus. This should remind us that our lives will be marked by unexpected opportunity and unsuspected challenges. We like neat little packages, don't we? Where our world just fits together perfectly and everything we plan works out just perfectly. But sometimes there's this great opportunity that we didn't plan for. Sometimes there is this huge challenge that we didn't plan for. How we roll with that speaks volumes to those watching us. Stuart Ridge, from his sermon, Shaping the World of Each Child, makes this point. I think most of you will relate. In family life and in church life, there's always a huge gap between the ideal and the real. Isn't that true? For example, here's his story. For example, every autumn, my family likes to go apple picking. Here's the ideal day of apple picking. The leaves are golden and rusty, the sky is beautiful, and it's 75 degrees. We all pile into the van and we start singing and laughing as we merrily drive to the orchard. We arrive early in the morning with plenty of time to enjoy the orchard. Surprisingly, the folks at the apple orchard say, today apples are free for families. So our kids guzzle apple cider and stuff themselves with apple donuts and they don't even get a sugar high. Finally, after a perfect day at the orchard, we dry home as our children keep saying, wow, thanks mom and dad. But the real day often looks like this. It's a disaster from the start. We leave at least two hours late. The apple orchard closes at five and we are leaving at three and it takes an hour and a half to get there. And I bark at everyone. We're going, so get in the car. We missed lunch because we were scrambling to get everything done with blood sugar levels plummeting. My wife and I start arguing. I think it's her fault that we're leaving late. She says it's my fault. We keep arguing until the kids interrupt because now they're arguing with each other. And I turn around and snap at the kids. Knock it off. I'm arguing with your mom. When we pull into the apple orchard, we only have 30 minutes before closing time. So we tell the kids, hurry up so you can have some fun. By this time of the day, all the good apples are gone and nothing is free. The entrance fee was outrageous because they knew they could rip off suburban families who are trying to pretend they're in the country for the day. And when we get the kids back in the van, it's already dark. 
On the way home, we finally get our apples. We stop at McDonald's for apple turnover. Unfortunately, family life and church life aren't always ideal. That's why we have to practice love, acceptance, forgiveness in the midst of real community and real fellow sinners. A saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Does your life make it easier for people to believe in God? Does our church make it easier for people to believe in God? Are we people with godly integrity? Do we have faithful character? Do we exercise authority with gentleness? Do we confront with the expectation of reconciliation? And do we respond to opportunities and challenges appropriately? I want my life to make it easier for someone else to say, I want to believe in the God. I want to believe in the Jesus that's in his life. I want to live gospel-worthy conduct. Father, thank you for your word today. It's a tall order, but you never said it would be easy. We are to have the attitude of Christ. Help us as your people to walk faithfully according to your word. To live lives of integrity, faithfulness, sincerity, reconciliation, love, humility, and godliness so that other people will see in us a love that they want to pursue themselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed for just a moment. What if there's anybody here, I know I've preached to the church, Anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus, it's not living for God. His heart is not right with the Lord today. Would you say, Pastor Kevin, I want to serve him. I want to give my life to him today. I want to walk out of this place a child of God. Would you pray for me? Is there anyone in this room just would raise a hand and say, would you pray for me today? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone else? Anyone in this room? Anyone? ask you this question, how many say I've got a ways to go but I want my life to be a life lived that makes other people